the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, SCA reenactors fight deadly brawl over pronunciation of ancient Greek warrior caste. It seems the hoplites ran the hoplites through with their spares to decide the matter. Space opera and timeless drama, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Christopher Rocchio about his book, The Howling Dark. This is a big, sprawling science fiction novel set in a far future human empire that encompasses billions of stars and millions of settled planets. Our hero is an empire nobleman who is seeking out the leaders of an alien race that has been destroying human colonies. He's trying to establish if peace or a truce is possible with these rapacious sorts. But the only ones who know where the aliens are are a bunch of unscrupulous humans who are quite willing to kill any who cross them. Christopher, you might recognize, is also an assistant editor here at Bain and has occasionally hosted the podcast in the past. The Howling Dark is the sequel to his first book, Empire of Silence. And both of those are put out by Daw, but he is one of ours, as it were, and the book is really excellent, so we'll talk to him about that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The main September hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are at booksellers now. These include 1636 The China Venture by Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper. Venture to save an empire. The newly formed United States of Europe sends an embassy to the Chinese empire for all important critical resources. Resources no one has ever needed before, at least not before an entire town showed up from 300 years in the future. But China is famously suspicious of foreigners. Can the uptimers and their friends persuade the mandarins to establish trade and diplomatic relations with the young United States of Europe? Their greatest asset is also their greatest curse, knowledge that China is due for decades of mass suffering and civil war. Changes must come, but changes also bring their own deadly consequences. Also out in September is Stellaris, People of the Stars, edited by Les Johnson and Robert E. Hampson. Becoming the People of the Stars. Fundamental transformation, that is what it may take to reach our final destination. And we may not have a choice, as dangers from without and pressure from within human civilization force us to adapt to a new star-traveling heritage. We also may find that Homo sapiens is on its way to becoming a new and unique species, Homo stellaris, the people of the stars. This collection contains original science fiction stories and accessible speculative pieces by top scientists that will take you to that future. Stories from authors such as Kevin J. Anderson, William Ledbetter, Todd McCaffrey, and Sarah A. Hoyt, plus essays on the science behind the fiction from Sir Martin Rees, Astronomer Royal of the United Kingdom, Mark Shellhammer, Chief Scientist for the NASA's Human Research Program, and more. Finally at Booksellers Everywhere in September is The Chronicles of Davids, edited by David F. Sharirod. Stories with Maximum Dave. 
The history of science fiction and fantasy is filled with stories by what we like to call Davids of distinction. Now for the first time, an anthology by people named David. For everyone, even if your name is anything but David. Read along as editor David F. Sharirod guides you through these strange, wondrous imaginations of the great Davids of the field. Fifteen tales by David Weber, David Drake, Gregory Benford, and David Brin. David B. Coe, D.J. Butler, Dave Butler, Avram David Son, David H. Keller, and many more Davids, including the artist of the cover, who is David Mattingly. The Chronicles of Davids, edited by David Afsharirod, Stellaris, People of the Stars, edited by Les Johnson and Robert E. Hampson, and 1636, The China Venture, by Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper, are all available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Christopher Rocchio back to the podcast. Hello, Christopher. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Christopher Rocchio is the author of the Sun Eater Space Fantasy Series, and this one's from Daw Books. However, Christopher is assistant editor here at Bain, uh, so we are going to make sure he's on this show as well. He began writing when he was eight years old and sold his first novel, Empire of Silence, when he was nine. Wait, no, at 22. Yeah, same difference. Yeah. He's also assistant editor here at Bain Books. Just generally, he does the social media. You know all kind of stuff here, Christopher. You're just like Mr. Uh, just whatever they tell me to do, Yeah, more or less. For instance, he and I uh, edited the uh, the book. Uh, Star Destroyers. Star Destroyers. Yeah, yeah. we're doing another one coming up called uh, World Breakers. It's going to be about uh, AI smart tanks. Working yeah, on that cool. next year. And he, and you've been doing a bunch of editing with Hank uh, Davis on some of those anthologies, those reprint anthologies. Yeah, I've done uh, two of them now, working on the third here. So, so um, he's a graduate of North Carolina State University, where he received a degree in English rhetoric and the classics. Out now at booksellers everywhere is The Howling Dark by Christopher Rocchio. This is book two in the Sun Eater series, which continues the star-spanning odyssey of Hadrian Marlowe, a nobleman of the huge human Solon Empire, to uh, and his job is his quest is to try to stop a terrible war between humans and the alien Cielson. Uh, uh, Cielson. So um, this is just like a, a star-spanning, um, really big space opera, space fantasy um, book. It's really good, uh, very complex, but at the same time, um, a lot of a lot of great characterization, a lot of wonderful action scenes. At one point, Hadrian, your main character, and then the thing is written in first person from Hadrian's point of view, right? All the books mm -hmm. are going to be. Yes, yeah, yeah all five. Uh, he brings up the Solon Empire. It's the ruler, uh, the emperor is a ruler of over half a billion planets, so this is a, this is a big empire. Can you tell us about the setup of your world, your world building, how it functions, how the empire functions, and, and where is Hadrian, our main character in the scheme of things? Yeah, so the Solon Empire uh, of Hadrian's day is about, it's about 20,000 years in our future, uh, and uh, the humanity spread about across uh, a third of our galaxy, give or take. Uh, most of those planets are barely settled. Uh, you know, there are only a couple hundred people on some of them, you know, mining colonies, that sort of thing. But they still count. Um, 
but uh, they've spread out uh, from the outer rim all the way in the Perseus arm, right? Because the Milky Way has got a bunch of different arms, and rather than just spread along them, eventually it becomes advantageous to jump across one of the big empty spaces to the next arm. So Perseus on the outside, and then uh, Orion, which is where we are, just on the inside of that, and then moving in towards the core, they've been expanding across a couple of the other arms of the galaxy, and they're just brushing into the core regions now uh, when the story starts. So it's sort of built this huge wedge across the galaxy, moving steadily towards Galactic North through the core, um, which is when they finally encountered the first alien race, the Sielsen, who've ever been technologically advanced enough to stand up to us. Because it's, of course, pretty quiet up there. If you, you know, talk to any radio astronomers, we haven't found anything. And so in Hadrian's Day, we found a lot of less advanced forms of life, a lot of animal life, a couple things that are intelligent, some things that might questionably be intelligent, but nothing that was, you know, able to fly around and, you know, fire ray guns back at us, that sort of thing. And so when the story opens, the Empire is the biggest by far of a few human states that's finally uh, encountered uh, this, you know, alien opposition. And this has been a huge paradigm shift for everybody. And the aliens have been uh, pretty rapacious in fighting back. Um, they're carnivorous and... Uh, space-dwelling, so they don't actually... The only things they can really eat that they aren't growing on their own ships are us anyway, and they uh, they uh, they need to eat, so they've been uh, fighting us for food, basically. Um, as for Hadrian himself, he's a nobleman. The Empire is very uh, genetically stratified. Uh, he's from the upper the uppermost class. Uh, he's a palatine. His family is distantly related to the Emperor and has this very ancient genetic pedigree can live for like 800 years um he's got a uh you know every, every, he's a little bit stronger than everyone he's a little bit faster a little bit taller you know nothing you know kryptonian but a little bit more a little bit more advanced uh but he is disgraced by the time book two starts his father has disowned him because he has run away uh, he did not want to take his father's uh, uh, career choice for him, which was to be an inquisitor in the uh, the Chantry, which is this religious institution we'll get into. Uh, and uh, he has been, uh, he was too interested in these aliens and the questions of life out there and what's, you know, he was uh, he's sort of a soft sort of, uh, you know, nerdy kid. And he wanted to learn about them and his father wasn't into that. And so when book two picks up, he... Uh, has found himself accidentally invested with a bunch of mercenaries trying to make peace with these aliens. So tell us, uh, before we get into that, maybe a little of the, of the history of, of the Empire and why it's so... Um, there's, there's just genetic engineering and there's, there's some casts and such, but there's also a, a real phobia and hatred of machine enhancement and AIs and things. What has gone on in the past that's led to this? What's the the historical curve? I know it's twenty thousand years yeah, old, yeah. so we can't go through all of it. But yeah, well, very briefly, the reason the uh, the empire is so technophobic, in much the same way that you know Dune's pretty technophobic, and there are you know other other science fiction series that are like that, is because about twenty thousand years before Hadrian's day, a couple hundred years from ours, uh, AI started to run everything, and that caused a whole bunch of problems. Uh, and without being too specific, just because a lot of this figures in the later books in one way or another, uh, the uh, the Earth was conquered by uh, a, a distant past America, you know, our future, who were, began using AI to regulate everything. And this ended up uh, 
you know, getting worse and worse and worse as they started to colonize outer planets. And there were basically no people who weren't completely under the control of these huge, uh, you know, uh, AI systems. And there wasn't really a lot of room for humanity in that future because as we start seeing increased, you know, mechanization in our own day, there are a few, you're more and more people who are put out of work, you know, disenfranchised in various ways. Technology doesn't leave a lot of room uh, for stories with people in it. And, and I, in writing, I wanted to tell a story about people because stories that aren't about people aren't really stories. And so I needed a distant future that looked like something we could recognize. And to do that, I had to get rid of the crazy, you know, god, or at least marginalized, so to speak, the godlike AI, you know, crazy science stuff. So we can still tell a story about human beings. Um, and so there was a huge war um, to get rid of the AI and to purge them from the, you know, early galactic settlements, you know, places like Alpha Centauri, Arcturus, near to Earth. Uh, and to replace them with a, uh, a system that was very deliberately human-centered uh, in cultivating this empire. It's very, there are a lot of Roman uh, influences, a lot of Byzantine and a lot of Qing Chinese influences in the way this thing's structured with this very legalist system of corporal punishment, things like that. Um, and it's done that way on purpose. Like in-universe, the actual empire is deliberately aping these ancient systems to generate uh, a culture that is steeped in these deeply human ways of doing things. Now, a lot of those are medieval, and some of us today might call them backwards, but they are deliberately designed to preserve humanity as a, as a species um, and as a in, and as a set of individual organisms. And they kind of, I mean, they kind of misremember some of the history too, right? I mean, they, oh gosh, it's yeah, so ancient that they. I mean, at, at one point uh, they talk about King Churchill. And oh yeah, like that. yeah. <laughs> that's really fun to do that sort of thing. Writing, He's, obviously, we know better, right? So you get all these little misrememberings. There's a a, a reference I think in the first book to. Uh, uh, what might be Star Wars, but they're remembering it as something that's actually historical um, because all these things get blurred together. Uh, my favorite one, and nobody has ever you know, mentioned this to me on social media, is there's a religion about uh, Sid Arthur, right? So it's a, a corruption of Arthurian myth and Buddhism. And so they talk about, you know, Buddha meditated under a tree, and in some versions of the Arthur story, Merlin is trapped in a tree. So Arthur is learning how to be Arthur from Merlin, who's trapped in a tree, and that's where he gets enlightenment like the Buddha. And so there are all these things that get a little plastic together like that. And there are things that are remembered straight up. You know, the people can still quote Shakespeare because some of the texts are still around. And some people, the more educated people, know better than others. But a lot of it's gotten muddied together, which lets me, you know, play with things sometimes I'll misremember a quote and the misremembered version of the quote is more useful for my purposes as a writer, right, than the actual ones. So I'll just put it in wrong and someone will call me on it and I'll be like, yeah, but it's been 20,000 years. Gotcha. Um, which is fun to do. I feel safe. Yeah. that's, that's <laughs> Also how conspiracy theories work. <laughs> it is, but I'm that's, not telling anyone this is true. So, you know, I get, I'm not Alex Jones. I get off. I get off free. I see. Well, um, well, it's pretty convincing, nevertheless. Um, the you mentioned the chantry before, um, so there's this is a term that Hadrian uses a lot. Yes. Uh, what what is there? They're related to Earth also in some way, right? Yeah. So the, the chantry is the organized state religion of the empire. It was started as a propaganda program, like ten thousand years before Hadrian's time. 
uh, in a way to sort of centralize, because uh, it's hard, right, to run an empire of so many, you know, million planets. Um, so you need a really strong philosophical thing that draws everyone together, and religion's super good for this. And this is kind of a cynical attitude. I'm, you know, fairly religious myself, but not all religions are made equal, and this one is definitely a fake one. And it's this sort of, you know, neo-pagan uh, earth cult. They worship earth, which is gone. It was uh, the casualty in this war against the machines. And um, destroying it was the final act that liberated humanity from the machines. And so we did kill our own home world in order to become uh, free from machine control. And that's still had a 20,000-year hangover in everyone's cultural memory. And the Chantry, because in... Um, in Christianity, a chantry is a church that you set up. You, if you're a wealthy person, um, you'll you'll you know endow it. You'll pay for it so that people will say whichever prayers you want. Like if you're like you would you know get a college building named after you. There are chantries on Oxford campus where people who are rich would build a chapel for the school, and people would pay money so that you know for the repose of their souls, you know, in the hereafter. And so this is a, a building, uh, an institution that's been set up to pray for the soul of the earth. Right, because maybe the earth will come again. Um, we will be able to return home, and all of these things. Now, uh, whether or not the earth is ever going to be in fit state for habitation again is a separate question. Uh, in but uh, it's turned into this system for um, you know, and a lot of peasants will sincerely believe this, but it's turned into a system for centralizing you know cultural touchstones across all these planets. But it's also the judicial system, right? They're the people who check for. Uh, resurgent machines, right? You know, make sure nobody has been dabbling with AI technology or has been in integrating machinery into their own bodies. These things are very taboo because they're trying to prevent a second situation where the AI take over everything and try to wipe humanity out. Um, and so they, they go on inquisitions and they, they look for witches and only these witches are people who have uh, machine implants or might be operating, um, you know, anything that resembles artificial intelligence. Uh, well, one other thing about the world uh, before we get into the story is how does star travel work and what are the limitations and such? So I am not a physics student. Like you said, I was a, I was a classics major. I, I studied Latin. I read, I read, you know, all the old Greek stuff translated because Greek is hard. Um and so I, I don't have a head for all the general relativity, relativity stuff, but I knew I wanted this big, sprawling, sort of Star Wars-scale giant universe. And hyperspace is too hokey because it has no rules at all. And it's so fast, you know, that you may as well be next door to everything, which always bothered me. I love Star Wars, but that always bothered me. And so there are warp drives, but they're slow. There's no time dilation in play when you're using a warp drive because you're not really moving, right? You're just moving space, you know, like you do in Star Trek. Um, but uh, if you want to get somewhere, it's going to take months or years or decades, uh, which has a way of, uh, which makes managing the empire very difficult. You know, they have a lot of localized regional governors. They can communicate instantaneously using a, a, like, a like an Ansible, right? Like, a, like an Orson Scott card, uh, Ursula Le Guin Ansible, faster than light. Um, but they can't travel anywhere quickly. So it might take 10, 20 years. So when this book starts, it's actually been 50 years since book two, but it's only been about 10 for Hadrian because he spent most of that time frozen. And there are a lot of these really protracted gaps like that between the books because each story is kind of its own, you know, arc. Front. You could read book two first and maybe be a bit lost, but the story would at least make sense. 
um, because there are these huge time steps between books and things, and even inside the books as they travel from place to place, which makes logistics really complicated, but uh, not too complicated because I'm not worrying about people aging at different rates, right, if I were working with general relativity, or is that special relativity? I get them backwards. Um, but people can get separated if they're on different yes. mission tracks, and age at because they wake up at different times yes. and the travel yeah, yeah. takes different amounts of time so uh a lot of hadrian uh hadrian's people will be frozen longer than he is uh you know he'll keep certain of his friends on ice until he needs them throughout the story um or if they're from lower castes they'll only live for like 80 years like you and me and not hadrian's 800 right so his friend uh, when we meet his friend switch at the beginning of this book he's about you know he looks like he's about 40 he's pushing middle aged and he was like 18 in book 1 um you know so he's been he's been up a lot in the intervening time period here and it's worn on him a lot more than it has on hadrian who at 35 is basically 20 um, and will continue to look like that for another several decades, especially if he spends a lot of time frozen. So people's ages tend to, to drift, and it's hard to keep track of, you know, how old characters might be relative to one another. Um, but it ends up, a lot of sailors, when they sign up for the army, say, no, they're never coming home, because they'll be out for, you know, by the time they get home, their great-great-great-grandkids will be there. So what happened in the first book in Empire of Silence. Sort of bring, give us a short pricey and, and tell us where we are at the start of The Howling Wind. Well, super briefly, um, Hadrian is a nobleman who runs away from home um, early on, like I said, because of the torture thing. He didn't want to be an inquisitor. Um, and He would also have had to have owned slaves or something like that, right? Because there's slavery in the uh, Empire. Yeah, he would have had to do a lot of things he wouldn't have been comfortable with, torturing people, um, you know, dealing with the the uglier side of things yeah owning slaves um um all sorts of things to be an inquisitor is a, is a tough job because you have to if there's any hint of this high technology like very frequently if they they think there's an actual ai problem they'll just nuke an entire planet um you know, they'll glass cities and things just it's not worth messing with because really humanity was almost done um in ancient history and they don't want to repeat that uh, so he runs away from home, and the ship he's on doesn't get him where he want, where he thought he was going. He's taken to a different planet through mysterious circumstances, things that get touched on a little bit in this one uh, by almost cosmic accident. He ends up uh, middle of nowhere, marooned, uh, robbed, and left with nothing. Uh, he spends some time on the streets, sort of like an Aladdin, right? And then he ends up fighting uh, in Colosseum as, uh, as a gladiator. He sells himself in there. Uh, in order to get some money. He's trying to buy his own ship so he can get back to where he's supposed to be and make some new friends along the way. But the planet he's on uh, gets uh, attacked by the Sielfen, and he has by then worked his way into the court of the local nobleman uh, as a translator, is teaching his kids, uh, the nobleman's kids, foreign languages. Because Hadrian, uh, as, a, as a kid, had learned a lot of different languages, including the alien one. Um, because he has a talent for them and an interest in them, and he wanted to be um, a scholar and a diplomat, and it didn't really work out. So he's working as a tutor, and he gets wrapped up in this invasion, and is the first person who manages to negotiate a surrender on the part of the aliens. Because the aliens, like the Japanese in World War II, just do not surrender, right? And they will they will fight as, to the end. They will kill themselves if you catch them. But he manages to negotiate a surrender, which is completely unprecedented, and he interrogates them, and he learns 
that the aliens have met humans before and they've actually had dealings with them, which as far as anyone in the Empire knows is also unprecedented. Uh, and it turns out that they have been dealing with uh, the extrasolarians who are a group of humans who live uh, between the stars. They're kind of like off the grid, you know. Um, so they hide out on, uh, you know, random asteroids, you know, rogue planets uh, around brown dwarfs, places that real civilization's not interested in being because the resources are too scarce. But at least out there, they're free of imperial enchantry oversight, right? And so those guys are perfectly willing to deal with the man-eating, you know, aliens because why not? Uh, who's going to stop him? Uh, and so they, uh, when this book starts, are trying to track down this planet called Vorgosos, which was sort of like part Atlantis, part uh, part Tortuga, you know, like pirate den, right? And they're trying to find a way to contact the Cielsen because the Cielsen are nomadic, and so they need to go somewhere to meet someone who knows how to contact them because they've got no idea. And that's where we find book two. Yeah, so tell us about the Cielsen. Um, right, there's a war going on right now. They don't... Yes. They don't live on planets, like you say, um, and they are rapacious, and they're really alien uh, in their ways. Um, what is, what's the threat to Empire, and what is, um, what's going on in general? The Cielsen travel in these migratory clusters, and some of their ships are almost planet-sized, right? They hollow out asteroids and moons, and they live in those, um, because they were originally subterranean when they evolved, so... It's a lot of work to just go on a new planet. You got to deal with sunlight and all these conditions, um, and so it's perfectly a perfectly reasonable thing to do is just to hollow out these giant, you know, rocks in space and live in those. And uh, they are carnivorous uh, exclusively. They don't eat anything that's not really meat. And we happen to be made of the right kind of protein. Um, and so they are uh, mostly interested in what they'll do is they'll find a planet. And they will, uh, they'll invade it, right? They'll, they'll land people, uh, they'll land troops on it. And they'll start rounding people up like cattle. And then they'll boost them back into their ships and, and they'll eat them. They'll use them as slave labor for a while and then they'll eat them. Um, you know, it's not that they're not civilized. They have a, a rich artistic tradition, you know, uh, warrior culture. They have a really stratified society that's like a, like even, even more than the empire is, right? They're like a, like almost a parody of, of human hierarchies because there's, the minute they're, that uh, Cielsen, like, loses a power exchange, right, a, a fight or whatever, they will obey the other one forever. Um, you know, they'll probably resent them, but they're deeply, deeply obedient. Um, and so they live in these, like, like every Cielsen who's not a, a prince is owned by another one, and there's a huge pyramid of this. People will be, like, you know, owned sometimes, a Cielsen will be owned back and forth by different ones, or their master will be owned by someone else, and it all trickles up to the clan head, the Aita, and uh, and each one of these clans under an Itach roves around basically doing its own thing um, and will farm whatever they can find. And they discovered humanity as we move towards the core, and that's been an extremely attractive uh, food source uh, for them ever since. And they've spent hundreds of years now picking off our colonies, not really with any grand strategy, but they've been really hungry because now they have this hugely... Um, static available food source there are a lot of us on any individual planet uh they can really really grow now and so they're hitting this huge expansion phase because they finally found you know more food than they thought they'd ever ever find they're not starving in the dark anymore eating one another and whatever few things they've uh, you know you know they they raise for food on their ships 
So tell us about our, at the beginning, uh, at least the first uh, portion of the book, the main Cielsen uh, character is Tanaran Iacato. Um Who is he, it? Um, and um, what is Hadrian hoping to accomplish with this thing? So Tanaran is what's called a Baitan, and uh, because of the Cielsen clans are so... Uh, they're so based on, on, on like physical violence as a way for uh, determining who's in charge, uh, tend to shift a lot. Clans are not very static. They have to build a lot of protectors around the princes to keep them you know, safe. And so they're not really Cielsen dynasties. They have singular strong leaders who get wiped out by another singular strong leader. And it's very unusual that any one of them pass on their rulership to their, their kid, right? Because you see this with humans too, right? You don't, most dynasties crumble in a couple generations because like, you know, um, although it's a bad example because the Roman dynasties are usually adoptive, but uh, Augustus was great. But by the time you get through the end of, of Julius Caesar's family, you've got Nero who's useless, right? Um, terrible emperor. And, and the Cielsen have this problem. The Baitan protect the integrity of the tribe's history. Um, Baitan means root, so they are like the roots of the tribe, right? And Tanaran is interested in the cultural and the religious history of his of its people. And uh, it's trying to, it's one of the people who protects the uh, the tribal legacy of the Oteolo clan, who are the Sielsen we see in book two. And uh, it had gone, when they invaded the planet Hadrian was on in book one, they were trying to go on pilgrimage to this uh, religious site that was built by another ancient alien power that has left ruins all over the galaxy that the Cielsen worship, uh, among other things. You know, just worship them. Um, and so it was trying to learn more about these ancient aliens um, as well because the Cielsen have a deep and complicated relationship with these other vanished alien ruins, which we'll get into in the later books. Hadrian has, basically he's got this guy hostage, although he's agreed to go with him. Yes. Tanneran, and he's hoping to negotiate some kind of truce with that particular clan, yes. at least. Uh, and maybe start something with, with the other seals and clans. Um, wh how is he going to do that? Does he have any idea of how he could... Oh. Hadrian has a really bad habit of rushing into things before he's really thought things through, especially early on in his life. He's very impulsive. Um, one of my one of my friends is a, a, a Catholic theologian, and he was really complaining about Hadrian's uh, lack of canonical virtues because he's not prudent, Christopher. Uh, so Hadrian has this pie-in-the-sky notion that if he can get the aliens to sit down, he can reason with them because reason is reason, right? And we can we can talk it out. And so... They he gets he negotiates the surrender in book one, which has never happened before. So he's a little high on himself, and he thinks, "Well, I've got this priest of the Cielsen, uh, who is loyal to this prince. Uh, I use him as a hostage. Uh, it's agreed to work as a hostage so that I don't kill it and I don't kill its people. Maybe we can change something because the war has gone on for too long." Um, and the Cielsen also just wipe out whole worlds. Oh yeah, no, no, they'll land and they will branch us to death. Um, and, uh, and that needs to stop because, you know, we'll lose people by the, the million, right? Every time they're hungry, um, because they have huge populations in these ships, you know, millions themselves and, you know, a person's a lot of food, but that's going to feed one Cielsen for a week, right? You know, two weeks, maybe, um, 
and they're also i mean they're good at fighting and so they're, they're a match in for the empire when the empire comes up against them. oh big time and they're also uh, a lot bigger than us personally you know they're like eight feet tall as a rule uh and they have claws and can see in the dark and are, are pretty keen fighters and they happen to use a kind of weapon it's a, a drone that uh they sort of throw and it flies through the air and it'll drill through armor which is perfect for bypassing uh human force fields which like the ones in dune uh have a speed limit right so they're able because you don't want to fire guns on spaceships right because god knows what you're going to hit so they use these drones instead uh, and so they tend to be absolutely formidable in combat um on just several several fronts um all right, and so the Cielsen worship or revere this alien race, the Quiet. So, yeah, um, this is actually something I haven't gotten to talk much about because none of the reviews people post seem to want to touch any of this just yet because it's been very vague. But the galaxy uh, that the Solon Empire is in, our galaxy, uh, is full of all sorts of ancient ruins. Now, it took us a long time to start noticing them because there aren't very many close to Earth. But as you start to move towards the core of the galaxy and as you uh, you widen out your search, you find all these things. And a lot of them seem to be built by the same, um, by the same species. Uh, there are these very mysterious ruins. There's not much in them. They're almost completely empty. It's just black stone labyrinths with these strange circular uh rune marks in the walls, right? They look kind of like if you've got a agglomeration of bubbles, right? Just sort of linked together all over the walls, everywhere. And they're on dozens of worlds. There's no, you know, pottery. There's no artwork. There are no bodies. There's nothing to connect these things, but they're everywhere. And it is quite possible, Hadrian theorizes and Tanneran slightly hints at, that there are some of these ruins on the Cielsen homeworld and the Cielsen evolved in the shadow of these ruins because they grew up underground, right? So they might have evolved in one of these labyrinths. By no means are these the only ancient ruins in the galaxy. There are a couple other things get hinted at in Book 2. Um, there are these strange oceans full of um, sort of sentient microorganisms, you know, and other things like that, which might not have been built by the quiet. But these ruins are extremely, well, relatively common compared to some of these other unique things. So they seems like... There was this ancient civilization that dominated at least a, a reasonable portion of the galaxy a very long time ago, and uh, that they are no longer around, and that they have left very little but these enduring ruins. Um, and Tanaran is uh, deeply interested in researching them for reasons uh, that Hadrian does not quite understand. He believes that they worship them like gods, because Hadrian tends to think, and the humans tend to think generally, the Cielsen are very primitive. Um, you know, they sort of look down their noses at them as beasts, which, I mean, they do eat people, which is frightening, but there may be more going on there, um, and they may not be the only things that the Cielsen worship either, um, and I can't really say too much more about that, because book three is going to go into this a, a great deal. Well, all right, so we open Hadrian's coming out of this cryosleep called the Fugue, mm -hmm. um, he is, uh, he's actually not going to go down to restroom yet. He's going to go to a, a market space station thing to find out if, where he can, he's, he's ultimately trying to find this world. Um, what's it called? Uh, uh, Vorgosis. Vorgosis. Yeah. So when the book opens there, they've been on the trail for several years, right? Uh, and they finally gotten a lead. There is an arms dealer on this planet called Rustam, uh, that, uh, 
has apparently had dealings with Virgosis, might have come there before, come from there, uh, and uh, they're going to meet with him. It's called the Painted Man, and uh, maybe he'll be able to work out some sort of deal, get some information, right? You know, very like we got to deal with smugglers, you know, the seedy parts of the galaxy. Um, the city is really cool. I don't remember where I got the idea, but it uh, it's a refugee camp because the capital on this planet had been hit by the Cielsa and just burned off the map. There's a giant crater there. And so what refugees are left, they just, in order to get a city up that could accommodate them quickly, they landed every giant space tanker they could find and they built in the, you know, gutted out remains of these, you know, multi-mile long, you know, space freighters. Yeah, and that's so, really cool. And they're never going to go up again. Yeah, they can't go up again because... Uh, the they weren't even built to land. The, the ships are too big, right? Because if you're building something in zero-G, you, you don't have to build it, you know, with, with uh, gravity in, in mind, right? So you land those things, all sorts of spars are going to crack under their own weight and things. So the city's all crooked um, and, and fallen into place. And it's... Well, I, just thought it, I just thought it would be kind of a cool, you know, different kind of... As I didn't want every planet we went to just be the same, you know, regular old city. I figured... You know, something mix it up a little bit. Yeah, this also let us see some of the cost of the fighting. Um, it also, and, oh, I go mean, ahead. Frankly, it kind of reminded me of, uh, of, of Blade Runner. It was meant ways. to. Um, it was meant to. You know full well that I'm a big Blade Runner fan. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, a lot of what I do in my writing is... Uh, I really want to respect the traditions, the touchstones of the genre. And some people feel like that's, you know, ripping off or, you know, being too on the nose. And, you know, I understand where they're coming from. But in blending all of these references, these notes, and this is not anything that's unusual in literature by any means. You see things like this in the way that, like, stories from the Middle Ages, like uh, the story of uh, St. Barlam, is just the Buddha story that had migrated into uh, European culture, right? You see people rearticulate stories from Greek legend as Christianized ones in the Middle Ages. You see um, things reborrowed in King Arthur and stuff like this. And you see Easter eggs in everything, you know? Uh, Ready Player One is a book composed of Easter eggs. Nobody accuses Ernest Klein of ripping things off. Right, and what I want to do... Oh, I don't know about that. Well, you know, not, you know, it's not like, oh, he plagiarized the Goonies. Well, referencing the Goonies isn't, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I want to do is write, a, is write a book that honors a lot of these, you know, pillars of science fiction as a genre, because I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I grew up reading all these things, watching these movies, and I want to write for people who are like me, people who love all of these things um, and, you know, maybe miss them, you know, yeah. Um, well, we should. I mean, we should talk about your influences. Um, maybe, maybe in a moment. Sure. Uh, but you've already referenced Dune and uh, and Star Wars, and there's a huge Star Wars influence here too. I I detect. Uh yeah. Hopefully, in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, it's like a Star Wars empire that makes sense. Um. um and <laughs> I do my best. There's a lot of yeah. <laughs> And also, when we talk about the uh, the very cool swords they have, we can... Ah, uh, yeah. No, that actually... Yeah. That, we'll get there. All right. So, Hadrian's down on this planet. Um, he's looking for the pl the painted man. And we are on the edge of Empire, outside of Empire at this point. Yes. Right? This is yeah, where right. the humans who don't mind having machines being part of them or, or wholly of them are. The painted man is... 
a homunculus. Why is first of all why is Hadrian looking for him, and what is that, and and what are those creepy SOMs that are around him? Yeah, so um, he's looking for the painted band just because he's a weapons dealer. He's got links to Virgosis, right? So it's just where we where we start. We gotta find this guy. He's got a link. We're gonna we're gonna follow it. Because so they're we, looking for Virgosis, this planet, because nobody knows where how to get there. Right, it's missing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a lost planet. Um, everyone's heard of it in stories. Most people don't believe it's real, but apparently this guy knows. And uh, Hadrian's just the sort of romantic who would believe stories about lost planets anyway, and very, very occasionally these sorts of stories are true. But he's, uh, he's what's called a homunculus, and a homunculi are uh, they're artificial people. Uh, some of them are crafted to specific purposes. Um, there are some called dryads. Uh, one of Hadrian's crewmen is a dryad. Um, she uh, has been genetically engineered to uh, make her own food with chlorophyll, like plants, right? So some of them have these strange mutations. The painted man... Does it, her name is Ilex, right? Ilex, yeah, yeah. She's uh, named... Yeah. Isn't that Latin for holly? Uh, oak. Oak. Yes, uh, yeah, okay. she's named after oak trees. Um, exactly, because she's a dryad. Um... And uh, so the painted man is a shapeshifter. Uh, he has uh, chromatophores in his skin that allow him to change their pigmentation, uh, which he can use not only to just change what you know how tan he is, uh, but also to generate tattoos uh, and all sorts of birthmarks, that sort of thing, so they can imitate people um, very precisely, uh, change voices, this sort of thing. They're, uh, they're used, obviously, as spies. They're used as assassins. They're used sometimes as courtesans for the weirder people in the galaxy. The painted man uh, in question uh, is uh, a weapons dealer. Um, and so he is this artificial person uh, who has escaped from his, uh, his upbringing because, of course, he was designed by somebody for a purpose and is just living his life as a criminal. Uh, and as for the the SOMs, the Psalms, uh, a Psalm is a uh, a human being who has had tech, you know, kit put into his head um, to basically make him a like a drone soldier, right? So the painted man, as this person from beyond the empire, uh, is perfectly comfortable uh, getting a bunch of people jamming machines in their heads and uh, using them as slaves, basically. So he's got his own little private army of remote control soldiers. Obviously, if the Chantry got wind of this, they would uh, nuke the place from orbit and be done with it. It's the only way to be sure. <clears throat> Aliens. And, um, but they haven't because we are out beyond the ambit of Imperial control because the galaxy is just too big to enforce everything, and there are always cracks. Oh. So um, now you call some of these modified, uh, machine-modified folks the exalted. What does that mean? Yeah, so... Of all these extra Salarians, right, the people who live beyond the, the Empire's, you know, control, there is a subcategory called the Exalted. And the Exalted are very full of themselves, which is why they call themselves that, but they are sort of post-human. They have either genetically modified themselves or mechanically modified themselves to the point where they're not really even human anymore. Hadrian meets one kid in this name, Nazareno. Nazareno is literally just a brain in, like, a little globe that's got a bunch of tentacles. Because Nazareno is... Um, a cabin boy, basically, on this giant spaceship, uh, and in order to operate in zero-G, it's far more convenient for him to be a little globe with a bunch of machine arms and tentacles to grab onto things. So he's given up his body completely, and this is like, really, this is like a 14-year-old kid, so it's kind of it's kind of messed up. Uh, and the extras, or rather the exalted, uh, will all basically 
modify themselves in whichever way they feel like. They'll graft new arms onto themselves. They will, you know, replace, you know, whole organs. They'll put their body in a giant mechanical crab, you know. They'll clone themselves. They'll change their body so they've got four legs or can breathe underwater. Um, and, but they'll do this to themselves after they're born, whatever they're born like, as opposed to a homunculus, which is someone who's grown to a task, right? Oh, okay. um, there are these very weird, specific distinctions these people have come up with over all this time, but the exalted tend basically not to be seen because they live on these giant spaceships and they travel around between the stars and they try to have as little to do with the Empire as possible because, of course, being as modified as they are, that is a prime target for Inquisition justice. Um, yeah, and they don't they don't want to get got right yeah. well the, um, the one of the giant spaceships is the Enigma of Hours which I think is a great uh, name for a spaceship thank you and um, the captain he, I guess he's sort of like one of these crab yeah he's yeah eight he feet long or, we don't we don't see I don't even know what he looks like yeah we don't see the captain of the Enigma in in the book um, but yeah the crew of these they, they crew these huge ships called sojourners and the sojourners are these massive vessels that are used for interstellar trading by these, you know, extrasolarians because they are extremely advanced, they're extremely dark, they're extremely hard to find, and so it's a lot easier for them to just bundle all together and use them kind of as mobile cities, bases that are run by these very eccentric machine crews um, in order to escape from the Empire, yeah. And so they end up chartering passage on one of these ships, the Enigma, uh, in order to get to Vorgosis, because the Exalted mostly know, all know where Vorgosis is, because Vorgosis is one of these, like, you know, mecha destinations for the extrasolarians, for all of these sort of unseemly characters who live between the cracks of the Empire. Yeah, and I mean, the, the ruler of Vorgosis is kind of the most modified of the modified Yes, Empire. yes, he is. So, uh, Vorgosis, I mean... We don't want to get too spoilery, but it does exist, and it's and it's ruled by this immortal decadent being named um, Karn Sagara. Tell us about him um, and his golems, and I just—he's just a great character, and he pervades the book, so uh, he's—it's important to talk about him a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So Karn is uh, the Dark Lord of Vorgosos. He has lived for about as long as there's been an empire, about fifteen thousand years. He grew up in the shadow of the war to defeat the machines. And uh, as a child, he'd been abducted by the early Exalted, right? They raided one of his planets as this war was going. Because the Exalted are descended from some of these machine-adjacent humans that the Empire was fighting very, very distantly. Um, and they were still raiding planets after the war was over because we did wipe out most of the, uh, you know, the machines. But they're always, they're always cracks, right? And so they disappeared, right? And Vorgosis is one of the old fortresses that they used during that first war. And Karn uh, was victimized by these people, uh, but managed, because he's very clever, to take control of Vorgosis a long, long time ago. And ever since, uh, he has ruled with an iron fist and has been using um, all sorts of ancient machine technology on the planet in order to extend his own life by uh, cloning himself and moving into his clones and by slowly building out more and more of himself into the computer systems that surround him. So he's not really just a person anymore. 
um, but he lives, you know, in, indiv in, in the individual body, some of which will be different from incarnation to incarnation because he has gotten bored in all of his living and starts to experiment, right? Sometimes he's, you know, female, sometimes he's male, sometimes he's neither, sometimes he's all machine, you know, he'll look different depending, um, but always, you know, you know, moving one body to the next, um, and he, uh, has mostly turned inwards by the time Hadrian meets him. He's very interested in art uh, and, and, and culture, and he spends enormous amounts of time, like hundreds of hours, sitting in absolute silence thinking about things. Because he's so old, he's not really human anymore. And um, he's built this huge, you know, fabulous city around him, which is mostly empty, um, that he lives in by himself, with himself, um, and he makes his name and he makes his money by offering the same sort of life extension to uh, the rich and the powerful of the galaxy. Even certain imperial nobles will sometimes find their way to Vorgosus and will make a deal with him, whatever you know that deal may be, in order to uh, get a second youth, right? So certain of these imperial nobles might be their own parents masquerading as a second generation, right? You know, they all passed on into their, their air quotes, children, and have been ruling for a whole second yeah, life. Super creepy. So, and the, um, uh, uh, he knows he's in contact with some of the Cielsen as yes. well. Yes. Which is why yes. Hadrian wanted to come. Karn will deal with everything. He's aware there are these things that are, you know, you know the Cielsen, you know, the quiet, these ancient aliens, there are deeper mysteries in the galaxy that humanity has not even quite expanded out to find yet that Karn has known about for thousands of years because he is exactly the sort of person who would look for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, before we leave Karn, I just love the, I, mean, I talked about this with you earlier, the Kublai Khan, the poem by Coleridge references here. Um the, the caves of ice, the, the gardens, the pleasure gardens. Uh, he's built this um, wonderful edifice, and it seems to me like you took that poem and said, what if this was literally true, all this stuff from this poem? Um, yeah, so I am a, I mean, I'm a big romantic poetry guy. I don't know, you know, Keats, Byron, Coleridge, you know, the, the, whole, the whole run. I, I, uh, I got into them uh, you know, maybe midway through college. I don't remember why. Um, but Coleridge's Kublai Khan is this great poem, right, about the, the Palace of Xanadu that Kublai Khan built that Marco Polo saw, and it's unfinished, um, but it's this extremely evocative piece, you know, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea, and so I built Vorgosus around the shape of the palace described in the poem, right, there is a sunless sea at the bottom, right, and there are things in it. Um, and there is a river that runs down to it through the old city, you know, from the, the ice, the surface of the planet, right, all the way down. Because we are going down towards the core of the planet. It's all subterranean because this planet has no sun. It's frozen over in the middle of nowhere, the dark of space. And there's this, you know, fabulous garden because Karn collects, he doesn't just collect art, he collects plants, he collects animals. There's all sorts of curiosities because he's lived for so long and curiosity is kind of the only thing that can keep you going for 15,000 years. Um, and so he has, he's built this fabulous, you know, place and he is, he's this, you know, this sort of terrifying warlord, much like Kublai Khan, who was kind of a contradiction, right? Terrifying warlord, but, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, 
you know, I can't think of the word, but, you know, he had a passion for, you know, the arts and beauty and this sort of thing. And that kind of contradiction in people is really interesting to me. And so, you know, why not do that in space? Yeah, and and it is one of the ways that Hadrian is able to intrigue him as well. Yeah, well, Hadrian's really, like, artsy kind of guy himself. He's very interested in history and poetry and 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 in art itself. And so they're able to, even though Hadrian is, you know, he's a kid, you know, you know, an infant compared to Karn, Karn finds him vaguely interesting because they have these things in common. And so I am kind of setting them up as this sort of, you know, opposing forces, right? They've got a lot in common, but, you know, yeah. one of them's septic. One thing we I, I did want to bring in is um, that Hadrian, um, aside from being a, a, a sweet-souled fellow, also is a pretty dang good sword fighter. Yes. And he fights with um, this sword made of high metal. Um, how do those work, and how is it different from a lightsaber? So, as a big Star Wars fan, but a big Star Wars fan whose dad was an engineer, I was repeatedly told that lightsabers were stupid as a child, and it always annoyed me. But he was right, right? If you play with a flashlight, right, if you've got a sword that's made out of light or even plasma, it doesn't weigh anything, right? And so if you're playing with a flashlight, you got the beam on, you're going to run that beam across your arm, across your face a billion times while you're twirling it because there's no mass there, so you're not aware of the, the, the dangerous thing you're wielding. Star Wars' answer is always, oh, they're using the Force so they don't hurt themselves. But that's not good enough. You know, I, I was a junior Olympic fencer. I mean, I, I you know... and. I went to the, let's be clear, I went to the qualifiers. I got through two rounds. But I was, you know, you know compared to most human beings, that's a pretty good sword fighter. Uh, I did HEMA for a little while. Um, and I know a fair bit about sword fighting. You know, not by any means an expert. I'm not like one of, you know, Hank Reinhardt's people or anything. But I know enough to know that my dad was right. And so High Matter is this material. It's kind of like Quicksilver. It's a pretty heavy liquid metal um, that can be programmed to do various things. It's used in a lot of electronics, things like that, but one of its more decadent functions is as uh, blade material because being liquid, you can program the edge really, really fine, so it's actually possible for it to cut uh, between molecules, right? Uh, and so it can cut virtually anything that's not got huge molecules, right? Long-chain diamond, you know, like carbon molecules, you can't cut those because molecular bonds are real tough. Uh, but it'll cut through flesh, no problem, stone, steel, whatever you want. Um, but it still has the mass, so it's a lot safer to use than a lightsaber is. Um, uh, but that being said, it's still cutting through virtually everything. So it changes a lot of the ways the sword fighting works. I had to think about that a lot. Um, because if you can just cut through anything, you can't do a lot of sword moves that will require you know pressure on the blade or things like that. Because as soon as that blade detects pressure, it... Uh, the high matter will turn into a sharp edge, right? So it'll cut in any direction it wants, right? You can do a lot of weird moves with that too that you can't do with normal swords, right? And it takes virtually no force to use, so it changes the way people fight. But Hadrian's grown up fighting. He was a gladiator after he was, you know, he was tutored as a kid because he was a nobleman and he was a gladiator. And so, you know, when he's not quoting poetry, he's cutting things to pieces. And I was a little unfair in book one. There wasn't a lot of sword action because he hadn't gotten a sword because he was destitute most of the book. And so I gave him one in the last chapter of book one, which is, you know, a kind of a promissory note. I swear I'm going to use this damn thing in book two. And so things get to get cut to pieces about every yeah. every damn page and if the, I can help it. And when other characters have a high metal sword, then you can have a sword. Fight. Yes, so... It's very dangerous. Yeah, so there is there is a high... There are two high matter uh, sword fights in, in this one. Uh, I won't say against whom, 
but uh, high matter can't cut through itself because it's liquid. Uh, also, it wouldn't be cool if they could. Um, they, uh, they, there's a strong, you have to use a strong magnetic field to hold it in place, and so they repel one another. Um, you know, maybe it's magnetic. I don't know. I haven't thought about details. It's magic, space magic. Yeah. Um, well, it's pretty cool. And uh, the way you describe it is cool um, and expert. So, there, um, tell us a little bit about Hadrian's uh, companions. Um, he, some of them are, are boon companions, and some of them are not so boon companions. Um, maybe tell us about the, the, the love triangle that we see at the beginning. I guess it's not really a love triangle. No, it's just two separate lines. Uh, so, book one, Hadrian meets this archaeologist who's very interested in these quiet ruins, because there are quiet ruins in book one, named Valka. And Valka is from this other nation out in space, um, the uh, the Demarchy of Tavros. So they're like, they've got a social credit system like China, you know, they don't, you know, everything's very government-controlled, very, you know, uh, top-down, socialist, authoritarian. Uh, and she loves it, right? She thinks the empire is this backwards, you know, terrible medieval state and, uh, you know, doesn't have patience for it, doesn't like Hadrian's backwards sort of traditionalism, any of that sort of thing. And uh, they don't really, you know, get along philosophically, but they both share this interest in history, right? And so Hadrian's, you know, all over her, really liked her, but she was like, you know, don't, you know, I've got no time for you. So when book two starts, I play a really mean trick and Hadrian's ended up with a comparably minor character from book one. And I knew when I was writing it, I was like, oh, it's not, it's not a nice trick. People are going to be mad at me. And I have gotten a couple of reviews who were, who were a little pissed off about that. Um, and Jinan is a soldier from another, you know, uh, another nation uh, called Jad, which is kind of uh, like a sort of Persian warring city-states kind of place. Uh, and uh, they've joined up with Hadrian's little force because he's got this really, you know, team of misfits company working here. He's got some ex-gladiators. He's got uh, some Judean uh, soldiers who've been gifted them by, a, uh, you know, uh, by the Judean uh, government as part of this little expedition. They've got some Norman mercenaries, and he's got some imperial soldiers, and they're all trying to get together, uh, you know, work together, and it's not working. Um, but he ended up with her uh, because of some events that happened between the books, and uh, he knows uh, when they, they get orders pretty early in the book to abandon the mission because it's taken too long and it's not worth it. And he knows that uh, if he tries to go through with his mission, if he pursues his ideals, he's going to lose her, right? But uh, Valga sticks with him because reaching out to the aliens and making peace is exactly the sort of thing she's into. And so he's sort of pulled between them as he's pulled between his ideals and the sort of, you know, following orders, pragmatism. Yeah. Um, and he's pulled, you know, camps of friends around him, too, as he loses um, some friends, too, in addition to uh, a, a, a love interest. And they've been masquerading as a mercenary company, but they sort of become that mercenary company. It's called the Red Company. Yeah. Um, when they leave Emesh, the planet, at the end of book one, uh, they've been given an official mandate by the Empire, you know, letter of mark, and, you know, you have to go and find this, do what you can. Um and a part of doing that is they have to play the role, right, so that they can deal with criminals and stuff. So they've actually been doing mercenary work uh, in order to, like, build a name and a reputation exactly so they can talk to somebody like the Painted Men. So they've actually been working together as a unit, and things have sort of, you know, alliances have shifted as all these disparate groups have started to fight together, you know. They, uh, you know, some people's loyalties to their their nations might now not be primary. They might be more loyal to their fighting companions, which is totally, you know, how that thing happens in war, right? 
you know, you see stories about, I can't remember if it was, I think it was uh, the Italian arm. There was like an Italian company, I think, that went to World War, no, maybe it wasn't Italian, maybe Swiss. Anyway, this one military company went to war in World War II and they came back with like a new French guy that like decided to just come home with them, right? He wasn't French anymore, he joined them. I don't think it was Italian because that'd be different sides, but um, you get the idea. And so, you know, relationships shift and as they've become a more coherent military, you know, mercenary company, those original relationships sort of break down. Um, oh. So the the one problem that he has um, is that is um, causing a great deal of contention within the group is Bassander Lind, who's a, who becomes a major character in the book. Um, what's the problem between them? So Bassander is the commander of the Imperial. Uh, little part of the group, right? And he's nominally in control of the whole mission, but because Hadrian's the one who sort of won over the Judeans in book one, and he won over these Norman mercenaries in between books one and two, and all the gladiators are totally, you know, those are Hadrian's people through and through. People really kind of follow Hadrian and not Bassander. Hadrian is the sort of person who'll put himself on the front lines, right? He'll fight with his people in the front, right? Because he doesn't really have a head for strategy, but he's a really good fighter, um, and he's a pretty inspiring speaker, and he's, you know, he's not an unlikable person. Bassander is a by-the-book officer, right? He, you know, follows, follows regulatory code, punishes people when they break rules, right? Um, you know, gives commands, doesn't, you know, put himself, you know, in the middle of the action because he needs to run things, right? You know, he's a, he's a naval captain. And, you know, the world needs people like that. But Bassander feels like his authority is being undermined by Hadrian's popularity. And... As they've moved further and further away from Imperial space, as Hadrian's sort of become more ascendant and popular, this has generated some strain within the company. And of course, when they are told to return, Bassander, being a by-the-book soldier, is absolutely in charge of the return, you know, wing of this argument. And as the company fractures, they fracture between Bassander and Hadrian. Um, and so that is uh, that's a that's a real source of tension there. Yeah, and there's um. Bassander just brings up a lot of Hadrian's uncomfortableness with his position in society and uh, and uh, having thrown off his heritage and now coming back to and, and everything like that. Yeah, so Bassander is, you know, I don't want to say he's, you know, Bassander is a traditionalist, right? You know, he's really like he's he like I say he's a paint by the numbers, by the book kind of guy. In every possible dimension, Hadrian is a nobleman who disobeyed his father, rejected his birthright, and constantly flouts authority. Right? He's like a T. Lawrence sort of, you know, uh, Lord Byrony. You know, I, I'm not following your rules, even though he's a product of the system. Right? You know, he he wants to do his own thing. He has his own vision, and and devil take the hindmost. You know, like let's just do, you know, he's going to do his thing, and Bassander you know, thinks that the rules are there for a reason and they need to be followed and that's how, you know, things really get done. And since Hadrian is the way he is, he kind of represents everything Bassander is opposed to philosophically, right, personally. So Bassander is, you know, very straight-laced. Hadrian is going to fly by the seat of his pants all the time. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Bassander. He's, you know, he's an antagonist, but I understand why people like that are the way they are. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's a lot of tension that gets built in as a consequence of that. 
um, just because he sees Hadrian as this person who's got all these benefits from the system, right? And he thinks it's a damn good system, and Hadrian doesn't respect them, right? No. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of there's a lot of history historical references, a lot of Roman history references here. Um, how was real history an inspiration for you? Um, Mostly, you know, in terms of trivia, right? Because uh, one of the, I'm not a I'm not a professional historian by any means. You know, my my classics background is in literature, right? And so most of the history that I, I learn, I'll learn like an interesting anecdote or something, and then part of the the you know or a detail, right? And part of the the, the work of uh, the fiction writers to put all these things together in a new way. It's twenty thousand years out. I don't need the legal system to work exactly like, you know, the, the Roman 12 tables or exactly like the way the Qing did it. But if I learn an interesting way about these things work, you know, I'll salt that in, you know, knead it, you know, change things around. And so I'll pick up an interesting story or a quote and I'll be like, wow, that's, you know, and you never know what's going to be useful. So as a writer, you know, you should always be reading. You should really be always reading about real things because Lord knows what's going to be of use to you. And, you know, inspirational strike, you throw that in in some way. Now I am, I'm a huge Huge. I don't want to say fan of, but you know, I'm deeply interested in 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 the old Roman Republic and the, in the Empire and the Byzantines. You know, after, just because, um, you know, aesthetics. I guess I always thought they looked cool as a kid, and I just sort of backed into it. I'm Roman Catholic, so you know, kind of comes with the territory, I suppose. You know, it's in the name. Um, but uh, there are other things too. You know, the British, the Spanish empires, and you know, just all these old periods of history have now to me a sort of romance to them um you know and i know obviously it's not nothing simple right but you know those the people from those periods you know the, the sorts of stories you hear about people like you know hannibal or about scipio and their rivalry things like that um you know they filter into the book in in you know weird ways and some of them more direct than others you know hadrian will quote marcus aurelius straight up Right or people, will, you know, there are centurions in the army instead of sergeants or whatever. Because, like I said, the uh, the empire wanted uh, wanted very self consciously to be a throwback. They they wanted all these sort of anachronistic historical structures built into their system um, as kind of a, a thumbing the nose to the machines that almost destroyed them. They are going to embrace uh, tradition and history in its fullest possible way and wear that on their sleeves because we're alive and we're human, right? Um, which is, you know, all a long time ago, and it's been thousands of years, so that's all very sincere now. They have gladiator matches, these sorts of things, you know. The gladiator stuff's a huge element in book one that's just, you know, borrowed. Because, you know, Roman gladiators weren't, for the most part, slaves. You would sometimes fight prisoners and stuff, but the real gladiators were highly paid athletes, and this is all a plot point in, plot point in book one, things like that. So, you're a pretty young guy. Uh, yeah. Um, getting older, but still... Still young. Um, tell us about the genesis. I mean, you must have started this pretty young. What's the genesis of the project? How'd you come to conceive and begin <laughs> this Sun Eater series? Um, I've always been writing the same book. It hasn't been the same book because it's, it's changed completely. But since I was eight, uh, we used to play make-believe on the playground, right? And my parents didn't let me watch a lot of TV. I was allowed to read. I was allowed to see the Batman cartoon. Uh, Star Wars films, the original three, because even Phantom Menace. I was the last kid who grew up without the Phantom Menace, uh, you know, and uh, I was allowed TV land. And so when my friends were like, Christopher, do you want to play Dragon Ball Z? I was like, sure. I don't know what that is. Can I be Batman? 
And after about two weeks of careful deliberation, the, my fellow kindergartners determined I could be Batman. That was cool. So it was Batman and Goku, you know, fighting Vegeta, you know, on the playground. And as we started to grow up, right, first grade, second grade, we stopped being Batman and Goku, and we became our own, like, weird characters that we sort of cobbled together from different pieces. So, like, Batman had a lightsaber, and he went to he went to wizard school, because, of course, Harry Potter came out and stuff. And... I, as my friends grew up and started developing social skills and playing football, uh, I wrote over recess, right? Because it's my only real free time. And I write in the back of my notes. You know, if you look at my notes from middle school, there's like no notes in them. It's just notes about made up worlds and stuff. And so I finished my first novel in ninth grade. It's terrible. I have one copy left of it. Um, and it's, it's just a mess. Uh, it was an epic fantasy novel that midway through it became a space opera novel. It was a big mess. And uh, ev- and I've rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and changed everything. So like the ship of Theseus, right, I replaced every plank and mast and sail in the bloody thing until it finally became what we got. Um, and so there's no single moment, right, you know, Robert E. Howard used to talk about, you know, just looking up and seeing Conan in his mind's eye one day striding across the plains of Texas, right? Or J.K. Rowling talks about seeing Harry Potter on the train. I never had that. You know, Tony was making fun of me before the podcast, you know, about Hadrian being a self-insert. And I don't think that's true, but I can't really tell because I grew up with him, right? (laughs) I don't know which parts of this character are me and which parts of him, you know, uh, which parts of me or him or or vice versa. Because I've been writing some version of this person since I was in second grade. Um, And he's, you know, of course, changed completely. Um... And I think we've ended up having some pretty divergent opinions on certain things, but that's, you know, that's cool. You know, fiction shouldn't be representational, right? It should be exploratory. Um, And so I've been exploring all these different ideas and all these different worlds that I've enjoyed. Um, And and that's how we got here slowly by accretion. I've seen you actually write short stories set in other worlds. (laughs) And you're very good in that that sense as well. So... um, it's a it's sort of an organic growth uh, over time of this character then yeah the whole universe and the you chose to write in the first person and it's it's also told from the future so we know some in some sense Hadrian is there telling us this. yes and it's not it's the older Hadrian um, and he's like talking about often how he's vastly changed um, uh, and this is some mysterious future. Um, yeah. Tell us, how'd you choose to do that? Did it just grow in? Um... I, I can't remember which book it was that convinced me to do it. Um, it might have been Neil Stevenson's Anathem. It might have been, uh, it might have been DJ McHale's Pendragon series, even. I don't remember, which is a YA series about parallel worlds. It was real popular in the aughts. Um, and it could even have been, it could have been Name of the Wind. Uh, which I read once. Uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, well, Book of the New Sun is an eye book. I read Book of the New Sun actually after I wrote Empire of Silence. Oh, okay. um, I was revising it, um, and I finally started it. I knew about Book of the New Sun, but I'd been rewriting the book over and over, and it just wasn't working. You know, I, I was trying to do like a four-point-of-view character, six-point-of-view characters, Game of Thrones, you know, sprawling galactic soap opera thing, and just couldn't do it. And I threw everything out, I think, in 2017, and I was like, I'm going to do it for real this time. I'm going to stop playing around. And I did a few changes 
Um, I changed a lot of place names just to make it feel like I was doing something new. I changed Hadrian's name. It had been Caleb, which is a worse name. Um, I changed just everything. And I changed the voice I was writing in. And I, I can't remember which book it was. I finally was like, I'm going to do it uh, because that book worked that way. Um, it might actually, it might have been Pendragon because those are all written as uh, as you know, letters the main character sending across parallel universes to his friend, right? So you know some weird stuff's going on because that's not supposed to happen, you know, parallel worlds. Um, but I'm not sure which book did it. And I decided to switch and it just started working. And the distance that you get, because when you write first person, every word is characterization, right? It's not just um, the bits about the character that are. Every, every single word choice, Hadrian's weird philosophical tangents, right? All of this tells you something about who he is, who he was, and who he might be now. Well, you like uh, the older Hadrian introduces some very cool aphorisms into the text um, on occasion, which is really fun because suddenly we get a saying of, of old Hadrian in there that, that amplifies and reflects back on the action. Yeah, you get all these these clever things you can do. And you can also, too, because I hate when people get mad about spoilers, right? You know, I remember after uh, Avengers Endgame came out, it had been like a month later, and the directors came on Good Morning America, and they're like, you know, I think it's probably okay. You can all start talking about it now, as if I needed the director's permission to talk about a superhero movie. Um, I hate spoiler culture. And so I wrote a, a book, right? And by writing it is a memoir, I can tell you how it ends on page one, and then if I can still make it cool, right? We don't have to worry about plot spoilers because you know he tells you page one, I ended the war, I killed all of the aliens, and then you immediately meet this nice kid who would never do that, right? That gives you a different series of questions to work with and what's going to happen because you can get what's going to happen in a Wikipedia summary, but you can't get the experience in a Wikipedia summary. And so by taking that sort of thing off the table, I'm able to tell a different story about you know, how someone changes, why they make choices, and are those choices justified? And I think that's more interesting than A, B, C, D, E, right? Yeah, so um, what's next in the series, and what are you working on now? Uh, so next is uh, book three, which is called Demon in White. It's going to be out July next year. Uh, I was supposed to have it done by tomorrow because I'm going to Dragon Con, and then I'm going to Salt Lake Fan X and doing a tour with DJ Butler, uh, Reed Witchy Eye. Uh, and uh, I really want to be done before then, but it's not quite there. I'm working on this huge battle at the end of book three. Spoilers. Uh, and it has just been slowing me down. You have so, a book with a battle in it. Oh, dang. Oh, yeah. No, no, huge, huge one. There's some skirmishes yeah. and other ones. This is full right, scale. Right. Uh, so I'm working on that, and then after I do that, I'm working on another Bane anthology, uh, finishing it up. It's called Overruled with Hank Davis. We're doing a bunch of stories, uh, courtroom dramas, but with robots and aliens and wizards, all things collected from, you know, the 50s, and 60s, some even from a couple years ago. Uh, Tony's got a story in there. It's pretty awesome. Ancient uh, stories, yes. Got, a, got an uh, AI on trial, even though it didn't do anything. A copy of it did. Super cool. Um, and then after that, I uh, got another one of those doing with Hank about space pirates. Uh, and I got a whole bunch of short stories I got to write. I got to do one for each of those. Got some other stuff. Um, and uh, I might be pitching comic books, but I can't say any more about that. Well, that's really cool. So, so what is what was your title for the next in the series? Demon in White. Uh, should have the cover reveal very soon. Yeah, but that is not. Uh, you said it's a tetralogy. Uh, it's five books. Five books. Yeah, yeah. So I managed to squeeze them for a fifth one because quintuply. 
I think at this point it's just a cycle. You know, I don't a know cycle. what the, the fancy word is. I'm or saying a Bane trilogy as we. Like yeah, it's a Bane right trilogy by Daw. Daw, yes. No. That's a whole nother story, man. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's interesting that it is by Daw, and and, and, it, and Daw's books are a little bit different from Bane books, but there are intersecting. Intersecting. How would you characterize? Um, how this would appeal to a Bane audience. Um, well, you know, there's all kinds of Bane audiences from Lois Bujold. Oh yeah. Well, it's definitely, if you like, if you like Lois Bujold, it's got kind of that world building flavor. Um, I got a couple, you know, nods to Lois in there. Fabulous series. I'm a huge Miles fan. Um, you know, it's got a lot of the political wrangling you'd get from a, from a David Weber. Um, you know, uh, less, you know, technical specs on missiles. That's just, that's so far beyond me how David does all that stuff. It's just, you know, beyond me. It's amazing. Um, but it is, you know, uh, what I, what I, I like to think of it as kind of like, uh, you know, it's like a, like a classic sword and planet, you know, adventure story, right? I, you know, like, like Jack Vance, you know, kind of like if, uh, you, you were to throw a lightsaber at, uh, like Solomon Kane even, right? You know, Hadrian's not quite there yet. Uh, I like to say when I'm pitching at uh, conventions that it's like Star Wars if Anakin being Darth Vader was the best choice he had, right? And so it's got, like, you know, classic sort of pulp thing, but also with the philosophical edge, right? You can talk about, talk about you know, stoicism and, and, and what the right way to behave is and, you know, these sorts of things. But, it, you know, all against this backdrop of this huge interstellar war. So you're trying to do both, you know, which means the book's got to be real long. <laughs> yeah. Well, the current book in the Sun Eater cycle is um, The Howling Dark by Christopher Rocchio. It's now at booksellers everywhere. Christopher, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for calling me over from my desk. Good time. Thanks, man. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The next morning, Jagdish turned over in his blanket and realized that his prisoner had escaped. The chains were lying discarded at the base of the tree he'd been tethered to. The manacles were still there, but somehow opened. Oceans! 
He threw off the blanket and reached for where he'd left his sword, but his hand hit nothing but pine needles. Morning, Risolda. Did you sleep well? Gutch was sitting on a rock a few yards away. Jagdish's sword was next to him, still sheathed. The prisoner seemed not only calm, but in a good mood. He gestured at the small cooking pot on the fire. Breakfast? Then he made a big show of glancing down at the sword. Oh, this! I thought you might wake up cranky. Well, I know how you warriors like to cut folks down without thinking things through first. Gutch lifted the still-sheathed sword. Now that you've taken a moment to wake up and realize that I refrained from doing anything bad to you, hopefully you won't be an arse about it and will grant me the same courtesy. Gutch tossed the sword over. Jagdish caught his blade but left it sheathed. You could have murdered me in my sleep. I'm not that sort of criminal. How'd you escape? A piece of wire, some mechanical know-how, and nothing else to do all night but work at the tumblers because my pillow was a tree. I'm sorry. Was I supposed to have fluffed it for you? Gutch laughed. The booming noise echoed through the forest and caused their horses to snort and pull at their ropes, and a flock of birds to leap into the air. So now that we've established I'm not going to murder you or run away even when granted the opportunity, let's re-examine this working relationship of ours. In my caste, we do business willingly, entering pacts based on trust and respect, not threats. Okay, some threats, but only on special occasions. No more chains, and in fact, no more of this prisoner nonsense. To hell with the Inquisition, this journey counts as time served. No ordering me around. I'll keep helping you, but once you've murdered all these wizards and restored your honour and whatnot, I'm going to collect their magic fragments, sell them, and buy myself a palace. You strike me as a dedicated enough man to pull it off, and I've always wanted a palace. And a harem. A palace with a harem sounds reasonable. Partners? That seemed like a very worker way of going about the endeavor, but Gutch's demonstration had been rather effective. I agree with your terms. You seem to take it so damn seriously. Give me your word. Very well. You have my word as a warrior. Help me, Gutch. Your sentence is served, and afterwards loot the wizards as you see fit. I don't give a damn. Then he realized that a length of cord had been run through his sword scabbard and tied around the hilt. If he'd tried to draw, it would have slowed him. What's this? A test of politeness. Gutch reached behind his rock and picked up a stout tree branch. In those massive hands, there was no doubt the improvised club would be extremely lethal. If you try to pull on me, despite my exceedingly reasonable proposal... I'd have caved your head in. Clever. Thank you. The sword you're looking for is... Gutch frowned for just a moment, then pointed. That way. The feeling is faint, but when Ashok uses it again, I'll be able to tell you approximately how many miles away it is. No more spinning around and carrying on, then? Nope. I'm too big to keep prancing about like that. Some traveller might see me on the road twirling and tell their friends. 
Talk about damaging your reputation. Breakfast. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Roman Gladius Transformer that turns into a BGM-109 Tomahawk missile when you utter the magic Latin phrase, Aikme Ordsway A.A. Isselme. Plus, thanks and praise for Christopher Rocchio, author of The Howling Dark. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>